You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. This episode is another in our regular series, taking an in-depth look at the SMFM pregnancy meeting. To find out more about the meeting, go to www.smfm.org or go to the AJP homepage at www.tima.com forward slash AJP. Thank you for joining us today for this installment of the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. Today, I am joined by Dr. Andrew S. Lane from the Greenville Hospital System, who is a recipient of this year's Fellow Research Series paper for his publication of Real-Time Continuous Glucose Monitoring in Gestational Diabetes, a Randomized Control Trial. This is published in the American Journal of Perinatology in the 36th volume, page 891 of 2019. The authors for this manuscript are Dr. Andrew S. Lane, who is the lead author from Greenville Hospital System. And I believe this work was completed while you were at Eastern Virginia Medical, Medical School, School in Norfolk, Virginia. Awesome. This manuscript is awarded the 2020 American Journal of Perinatology Best Manuscript of the Year, along with two other manuscripts that you can find within our series. Andrew, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here speaking with you today. So tell us a little bit about what led to your interest in the management of diabetes and specifically maybe the application of continuous glucose monitoring. Well, it all came about from at Eastern Virginia Medical School. They have a very robust diabetic education program, real emphasis on education. And so I had a lot of training with that in fellowship. And what I really got into it was at the time, interestingly enough, I lived close enough to work where I would walk every day and I had my Fitbit. So I would sit there every day, I would do my Fitbit, I would get in my steps, and then I would go to diabetes clinic, and I was hearing about these continuous glucose monitors. And I started wondering, now that I'm wearing my Fitbit, this technology that's giving me this real-time feedback every day, pushing me to take the stairs, pushing me to walk more, could this kind of technology, this feedback in real time, as opposed to hearing feedback from a doctor two weeks later, help the patients make decisions on their diet in real time and help to control their diabetes? Absolutely. So this is very interesting. So basically, the utilization of electronics and specifically real-time monitoring has become a reality over the past few years. And we do see more patients who are interested in having that degree of monitoring. How did you decide to proceed with the study? And specifically, how did you approach patients about the option of real-time monitoring during their management of gestational diabetes? Well, once we had the initial decision going with the real-time monitoring, the kind of trick became how are we going to compare, who are we going to compare it to a group uh, for our comparison group? So what we did first is we got a grant from the Medtronic company to have access to the supplies. And then once we knew what supplies we had available, we kind of worked back from there. And what we really wanted to do was to make sure both groups were a fair comparison, was to have continuous glucose monitors on both of our patient groups. What we decided to do is one group would have real-time feedback where they were wearing a displayable module. Essentially, it was an insulin pump that we were using for its display purposes. And the other group we decided would have a continuous glucose monitor that would record information, but wouldn't display it to the patients. So they kind of had that effect of knowing they were being monitored continuously for that effect on their behavior. And we kind of started from there and kind of worked back once we had our supplies available to us. How many patients did you enroll in the trial? Before what we had done, the largest study actually was in China using continuous glucose monitoring. And I believe 340 patients 
and one of their cohorts as well. So they had some good kind of background information on just what was the average glucose of someone wearing a glucose monitor for 48, 72 hours. So once we kind of figured out what was an average glucose over a period of these monitors, we kind of worked back from there and decided we thought it maybe a 20% difference, a 20% lowering of the mean glucose would be significant. So when we did our sample size calculations, we saw that for our trial, we would need 10 patients in each group to show a 20% lowering by wearing these monitors for four weeks. And our goal was to enroll 20 to account for dropout, which we are fortunate that we got all those because we did have dropout. Was there any difference in patients that were maybe acceptable or not acceptable for real-time monitoring as far as maybe weight or other parameters that may play into? We tried to keep it pretty broad and pretty applicable. The one thing that we definitely did want to do is we limited to patients that were kind of mo- that were diagnosed over 24 weeks because we wanted to remove any patients that could have had pregestational diabetes being picked up by an early glucola screening. Mm-hmm. And we also tried to limit it to patients less than 32 weeks to have a few weeks for them to get this information. We initially had a BMI cutoff, although in retrospect, that was a mistake because obviously higher BMI would be more likely to have gestational diabetes. That is something that we changed as we went on. But beyond that, the big difference with these patients is we we have several hundred patients that went through our clinic every year, about 600 to 700 in our diabetes, new referrals from our community. And the big issue with enrollment was actually just the acceptability and the education of the patients of this technology that they weren't familiar with. So we had a, it was actually fairly difficult to enroll even our 40 patients. But the patients that we did enroll <clears throat> tended to be patients that were very interested, were very involved with their care, and were really interested in this feedback. So mm-hmm. I think it ended up being a very select subgroup of the total patient population. That's very interesting. So they may have been more motivated, <clears throat> in other words, to be compliant with therapy because they were also interested in having additional feedback. That's exactly right. I think those patients are very interested in their care and they really want as much information as humanly possible. That's very interesting. So did you consider blinding them to what the real-time feedback was? We didn't consider doing it to that level. We mostly just wanted to make sure the second group, the comparison group, Mm -hmm. was collecting the same information. So they were actually wearing the same exact sensor Mm -hmm. on their body in the two groups. The only difference was that the one group had the display in the second control group, we would download those to a computer station and never give that feedback. So they knew they were being monitored, but they didn't get that feedback. Very interesting. So in the patients who were, knew they were being monitored but did not receive the feedback, did they monitor their glucose via standard methodology of just intermittent? So both of our groups would still do kind of the standard recommended finger stick glucose. So we would do a fasting and one to two hour postprandials in both groups. And because we wanted to make sure that we were making all the medical decisions based on the kind of the standard of care, they had kept a traditional glucose and dietary log. And the providers that were actually seeing the patients, we did not show them any of the data from the real-time monitoring either group to not bias them. And all decisions about starting insulin, going on oral medication were made based on the finger sticks. It was really mm-hmm. just the patients getting that information, seeing if that would influence their behavior. What was your primary outcome? Our primary outcome was after four weeks of wearing the monitor to see the average glucose over like a full week of wearing the devices in the fourth week. We figured one week wouldn't really be enough to get the patients to get that feedback to make changes and something longer like 12 weeks would be cost prohibitive and also a little redundant at some point. And did you have any secondary outcomes? We, had, we try to look at a lot of secondary variables, including time outside of range, whether it be hyperglycemia, hypoglycemia, and also adverse pregnancy outcomes like shoulder dystocia, requirements for C-sections, failed inductions of labor, preeclampsia, and about anything else we could think of. Mm-hmm. 
Did you look at correlation with recorded blood sugar with what the real-time glucose sensor was telling? And that's one of the more interesting things that we were worried about is whether it would be accurate and this information they were getting would be, would be good. Now, that's one of the things that's changed a lot as the technology has improved with these glucose monitors is the accuracy. Overall, just in a general sense, these continuous glucose monitors are not as accurate as finger sticks mm -hmm. when you're having large swings where it's going up quickly, down quickly, or is very low below 40 or very high above 400. But these glucose monitors would be calibrated every time you would put in the finger stick, so four times a day. And we found that they were very accurate with the, with the finger sticks the patients were getting. Good. So tell us a little bit about your results. Well, our hypothesis had been a 20% lowering in the real-time group after the four weeks. And essentially, to make a long story short, we showed that there was no significant difference in the mean glucose between our two groups, the time in hyperglycemia, time in hypoglycemia, or any of the adverse pregnancy outcomes like preeclampsia, shoulder dystocia, oasis sphincter tears, or actually anything overall. That's very interesting. So in looking at the population, if you were to change this study, what would you do different? I think that what we would do differently if I could do it again and had kind of access to all available technologies would be to use newer glucose sensors. Because even though this seems like advanced technology for gestational diabetes, it's actually lagging behind this technology for what's current in pregestational diabetes outside of pregnancy. So the monitors that we were using, and we had about a 42% dropout for the compliance with these patients. And mm -hmm. the big issues they had were things like irritation from the glue, the sensor falling off and things like that, which have been improved upon. The newer sensors you can wear for up to 14 days. You can mm -hmm. place them at home. You don't need a doctor. They figured out what the irritant was in these, uh, these adhesives and have been removed. And they're more accurate. And in fact, a lot of the newer glucose monitors, like the Freestyle Libre, you don't even need calibrations. So in theory, you don't even need to do finger sticks. So I mm -hmm. think if I could redo this over again, I would use one of these newer, kind of what they call flash CGMs, like the Freestyle Libre that could mm -hmm. be left on longer and wouldn't require patients to come into the doctor so much. And it might also be interesting to enroll patients who are failing current self-monitoring. You know, I wonder if compliance with just monitoring might improve with these real-time meters. Yeah, and, and as time goes on, I mean, these things are already kind of the standard of care outside of pregnancy. So we really can foresee the day when these patients are, instead of doing these finger sticks, are going to be wearing these monitors. I mean, whether the research is there or not, if you ask the patient, mm -hmm. would you rather check your finger stick four times a day or do a stick every two weeks and wear a monitor and get that feedback? So I think over time, that's going to be the norm and that's going to increase compliance because it's like an IUD. I mean, it's just there. Mm -hmm. You don't have to right. do anything. So what's the, what do you think the impact is for cost? You know, people who are considering potentially, should I go and do a continuous monitor? Because I certainly see those patients as well that are very concerned about their glucose and more information is always better. Mm -hmm. Even though this study doesn't show that, it may show that in other types of populations. It may, it may be that we do have a highly motivated population, as you suggested before. But what's the cost differential when you talk about use of this technology to do real-time well, for, for right now, there is a big cost differential just because it's not the standard of care. So med, a lot of our patients are on Medicaid, and it wouldn't cover the cost of this outside of the research setting. So I think at some point when there's insurance coverage, it'll be more common. But for right now, the patients, if they were interested for gestational diabetes, they can get these monitors out of pocket. But it would definitely be a significant cost difference out of pocket for these patients if they Certainly. wanted this now. Certainly. Well, thank you very much for joining us today for this podcast. And we look forward to sharing this with our readership as well as with our podcast membership. 
And please join us again next month when you will hear additional podcasts from the American Journal of Perinatology. Well, thank you very much for having me, Chris. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It's been good working with you. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about the journal at www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next time. <laughs>